always have in my mind a little prayer that God just helps me step out of the way and that he gets to be the one that actually is in the lesson itself and in the teaching because it is so easy for us to to rely on you know things that we think we know or things that we think that we have to say that are important but I'm always amazed at where you guys take me <laughs> between because the Holy Spirit working through your hearts and minds and that's where the the flow and the movement of the conversation goes so it, it is really a, a neat thing but thank you father for being with us this morning and thank you Bill for that okay so now we have got um, to back up just a little bit last week we closed out but we did not really thoroughly talk through that very last section where the parable was and as you know from the week before I had to back us up also correct so I'm finding that that happened again this week. So what I did was, in order to expedite this morning a little bit, I just put the at-a-glance chart up here to give you the flow of thought where we're at so far. Keep in mind, my titles are my titles. You do not have to have the same titles. You can pick anything you want that says basically the same thing. You, you, you know, we should be in the same ballpark with one another. But titles are not inspired they are your reasoning through what you've seen presented and what you think is the most key essential point of that passage. So laying this at a glance chart back on the context that we know thus far, that this is a writing that this author wrote uh, that he accumulated by investigating and basically interviewing the eyewitnesses, and he then wrote up an accumulative list of events, thing, how things in, unfolded, and he said, from the beginning, which therefore takes us to chapter 1, goes, backs us up to the sun, where, where the Son of God is coming, or, and the text itself, itself says, is come. Do you know why it said that, that he is come, although he hadn't been born yet? Does anybody have an, a concept? It's perfect for our battle in the world today. At what? That's right. At what point is he here? Conceptually. From the conception, right? So in chapter one, we see the Holy Spirit falls upon Mary, and she is conceived of the, by the Holy Spirit, right? Correct. Okay, so I love this, this thought that right there in the beginning in chapter 1, the, um, the statement, somebody open and look at verse, uh, well, in 135, I think it's the angels making the announcement. But the, right from the beginning where the, the angels come, they present themselves to him in the field, and they say he has come. But even before that, he's presented as being conceived in the womb. He has come. So although we don't see, actually, no, I take that back. The born, he's being born in chapter 2. So in chapter 1, it's just the conception, right? And John the Baptist is born. But yet the statement in chapter 1, somebody open that because I didn't do that. Open up to chapter 1 and see what 35 says. Because it's a prophetic utterance. It's, a, it's not that it's occurred yet. Do you have that available? Okay, go ahead, Kathleen. Okay, so we have the he, him being, I thought it had actually said in there that he had come. I picked the wrong verse, didn't I? I'll try that again. 
So it's a, it's a work in progress, right? But the fact in chapter 1 that says us, to us that the Son of God has come, and we see then that the forerunner is born, correct? Is the forerunner significant? Why is he significant in the flow of this record? Okay, because he was prophesied that, that when the Christ would come, there would be a forerunner. It's part of the, the prophetic package of key, of key indicators as to when things are being fulfilled and, and the knowledge that, in fact, it had been fulfilled. Jesus' coming was going to be uh, preceded by a forerunner who would prepare the way, and he would come in, this, in the likeness and in the power of Elijah, right? When Elijah was on earth, what was his message and his power like? What was he like? Right. Right. And when he preached, what was his message? Repent, repent, repent. So in that manner, then John came as one in the likeness of Elijah. So the forerunner is born in chapter 1. Uh, and then chapter 2, then the Christ comes. Now we have the angels in the field making a proclamation. What, did they, what was their proclamation about who he was, who this Jesus was that had come? He is the Savior. Christ the Lord is born. For he's, The angel said, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For this day in the city of David... A Savior has been born, which is Christ the Lord. Now, the, all of that, accumulative, and there's a bunch to unpack in that, but every, there are so many parts of that that, again, fulfill prophecy in the right place. It's the right, it's the right gender. It's the right, you know, he's come to do exactly what God said he would send, and that is that he would send a Savior. So we see that fulfillment in in the flow of thought here, the, that God's Son is going to come. Now he's come. Then following that in chapter 2, the second part of that were, were the witnesses, remember? Who were the witnesses that confessed and basically affirmed that this was the Christ? There you go, Simeon and Anna's record. Both of them were people who were faithful in their faith, who had, were abiding or, or attending in the, um, the temple on a regular basis, and particularly Simon had been given a word, a prophetic word from God, that he would not see death until he had seen this, the Christ. So here it is. He shows up into the temple, and, and Simeon gives that confession, and then Anna follows it as well, right? Chapter 3, then, we see John prepared the way as foretold, correct? So he, what was his ministry like? When it shows us in chapter 4 or in chapter 3 what, exactly what he was preaching, which is the message of repentance. And he was baptizing the people for, for forgiveness of sins. Now, a little bit confusing if you don't make the adjustment by holding fast to your known doctrines is that then Jesus also came to be baptized at that same time. What we do know about Jesus is he did not have a baptism for, the, for remission of sins or for forgiveness of sins, correct? So our question as inductive students is, well, then why did he come to be baptized? And what do we know? 
It was the beginning of ministry, and it was a common practice in the Jewish faith that there were baptisms for making new statements or making new covenants or making new appearances. And when he went into the water and came out, what was the declaration about his baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So at that moment, he's taking on a new identity in a couple of different aspects. Number one, what? It's right. He's no longer the son of Joseph. He is now identifying as the son of God. And what is his other reason for baptism? What does he do that follows this? He starts a public ministry, which is very traditional for the Jews to do that, to have baptisms when they become a priest or even when they become a parent or when they get married. I mean, there were lots of baptisms that they did that were public for identifying a new thing had come in a person's life. It's, it is a new identity. So that's what he did. Jesus was baptized. And how, what was he baptized as? The Son of God. Okay? So we see a beautiful flow of thought here about who was this, this uh, son of man who was coming? What was his mission? What was his purpose for being here? We're beginning to see through our uh, just, you know, kind of honing it all down, just bring it down to some really concise points or thoughts. We're seeing the flow of thought that he had been, pre- he had been for, uh, uh, he had been prophesied. He comes as prophesied. The forerunner comes as prophesied. He's born. People confessed him. There were public confessions of who he was when he came by very credible, reliable people in the temple publicly making these confessions. These are very important factors, especially when you uh, truly believe the word of God is a written record of factual historical evidence. And that is what this was written for. In Luke's case, he wrote this so that it would be a concise account of exactly what had happened so that they would know the exact truth, right? And so here we see this is the exact truth about who this Christ was. And then it says um, in chapter 4, then we see him go through a period of tempting. And last week, we spent so much time on this. Why the temptation? What was its function and purpose in the life of one who was coming into a public ministry and one who was coming into his new identity as the Son of God? Okay. Okay. So he he came into... Um, the temptation so that he would experience it and that then people, you and I, for instance, down generations later, we would know that our great high priest can, can understand our infirmities and our struggles, okay? What else does it function to do? Right? Yes, which is basically what Bill just said. It was an example. There you go. There you go. That's what I want you all to key in on. Part of the purpose for uh, any temptation, and we didn't get to do a lot of digging on this, and it's not where Kay took us, but what is the function and purpose of any temptation in the, in the life of God's children? To strengthen us so that we can endure. The, and, and, and it purges the things that you don't want in your life, but it also brings the cream to the surface, so to speak. It, sh- it brings out 
and in this case with Jesus, it gave us the evidence of those of what exactly is needed to really have victory in our tri- in our trials and temptations. What was it that Jesus demonstrated for us that we need to know? Though thus saith the Lord, it is written. This is what God says, and no matter what Satan threw at him, his answer was scriptural, right? So there we are. Jesus was tempted, and then it says, and he finished it, and then Satan, uh, the devil left him until an opportune time, until another time, right? In other words, Satan's never done, right? But what I thought was interesting, the text itself said he finished it. And I thought that was uh, kind of an important point because you and I need to know that the temptations and the t- and this testings come into our lives, but they're for periods of time, and they will be finished. They will come to an end. Some some are longer and more, you know, long term than others, but every one of them will come to its end. Okay, and then he says, then he entered into his public ministry. So we were up to that point. Then last then the last week we talked about uh, Jesus called disciples to follow him. And then we see the Pharisees grumble at this, right? Now, we didn't quite get to the grumbling quality of, the, of our discussion last week because we ran out of time. I got stuck up in some of these uh, because we had chapter 4 and 5 to cover last week. And I hung a whole lot of time in Jesus was tempted and why that was important and how that related to uh, him entering into his public ministry because I wanted you to tie it all together. So now what I want to do is step back Go with me, open to chapter 5, and I want to cover the last few verses. I made a note down here for you. In chapter, I think, this is just how how I'm reading what I'm seeing here, but it seems to me like starting in verse 30 down through 37, he's setting up the next account for us, and he does it through explaining to us the response of the uh, Pharisees and the scribes to what's going on with him and his ministry. And he, he does it through a parable. Now, Kay had us last week study up a little bit on, on the subject of parables. What did you learn about parables? Oh, I meant to get my book out. Let me get my book here. I have a, I think it's a shorter version. I should have opened this and... S- Okay, and a, okay, a parable is a story. It's a it's a demonstration for us. What el- what does it teach us? What do parables do? Say it again. Yes, okay, can be for comparison. So what he'll do is he'll present something that is known to explain what? What is unknown. Or another way of saying it, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now that's my simplified version. I got that from teaching Sunday school eons, like 40 years ago or so when I was teaching little kids. But it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. There's a spiritual truth in it, and he takes something that's tangible and understood to his audience to explain something that has a spiritual context to it, right? So he comes in, and he's speaking to these, um, uh, the masses. They've come to see him. He's been healing people. He's, he's calling his disciples. Um, 
there was a paralyzed man. He, show, he was proving his authority at that point. It was, he, that was the beginning of him showing that he had authority to f- forgive men, right? That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says in uh, 29, um, he calls Levi, and this begins a little bit of a problem for the Pharisees and Sadducees. Do you remember why? Okay, because those were pooey, pooey, pooey right? They were tax collectors. How did the people think, what did the Pharisees and Sadducees on the whole think about tax collectors? Uh, About like we think about them today. (laughs) Actually, we don't think of the tax collector, we think of the government more, but still, they they looked at these tax collectors very negatively because quite often they were scoundrels, right? And so since Jesus called one, now what did Levi do when he was called to follow Jesus? And he said, yes, yes, Lord, I'm going to follow you. What did Levi then do? He, had a re- he set, wanted to celebrate with all his friends. He wanted his friends to meet this Jesus that he was just so, you know, in love with at this point. Yeah, right? And so he invites his friends over, and there comes the Pharisees and the scribes. And they began their grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they, sa- and they said to him, The disciples of John... Now, so now they're going to make a comparison. Now, wait a minute. John's disciples, they, they offer prayers, and the disciples of the Pharisees do also the same. In other words, we're so pious, we're so good, right? Just like John's disciples do this, so do, so do our disciples do this, right? But, but, do you see the big but there in verse 33? Circle it, highlight it. That is a significant contrast there. This sets you up to understand what he's going to follow it with in the, in the parable. He says, but y- yours eat and drink. And so then Jesus explains to them, he says that Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? Now, what is he talking about there about the bridegroom? What do you know? Did we talk about this last week a little bit? What is the, what's the idea about the bridegroom? Okay. So what he's doing, again, is he's taking an earthly understanding, something that's known to them, right? How is, what happens when the bridegroom comes to establish the covenant contract with his to-be bride? Right when he comes into the city, and he like Joseph did with Mary, the, that she was betrothed to him. Right, he comes to the city. He he betrothes her. There's a contract. There's a feasting. There's there's celebration. It's a big deal. It's like a wedding in their tradition of doing things. And so what he's doing is he's taking what that was common to them, what they understood, and he's saying, "That's me. I'm the bridegroom. I have come." And while the bridegroom is here. They are, not, they are not going to fast. That's not what's done, right? By the way, when I go, there'll be plenty of time for them to do that, right? So, he go, so then he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And then he was also telling them a parable. So he starts with a demonstration of something that they did understand without it being too complicated. Then he moves into something a little bit deeper. Now, why do you think he used parables in many cases? (laughs) 
Yeah. Can you guys find that verse for me? There's a verse in there that says, um, yeah, there it is, in 27, in 627. But I say to you who hear, right, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. So Jesus is always looking for the one who actually has an ear to hear. The book of Revelation teaches in the letters, it's a repeated phrase, let he who has ears to hear right? Hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. So he's, he's using parables, and it seems to me like what he's doing is he's, he's like taking a surgical knife like, an, like a surgeon does, and he's doing a surgical cut to find out who among you all has an ear to hear. Who of you is perceiving and really listening, right? Would you say? Yes. So, yeah, they were coming for the healings. They, they wanted to see the spectacle of it, the excitement of it. They wanted to see what the, all the hoopla was that was going on at this point. It was just beginning, but there already, already were some crowds beginning to, to come. And we see when we move into the next chapter, it's even magnified beyond that, right? So here he says, then he takes them into the parable, and he gives them um, a... Uh, uh, basically two or three different statements in here. There's, there's two at the beginning and then closing with a third one. The first one is about cloth. Now, what, did we, what do you think he's saying there about the cloth? There are some key words. What did you mark for key words in that section? Huh? New and old. Significant, significant, significant for he who has ears to hear. If you hear new and old and you have spiritual ears to hear, what does that trigger in your mind? New covenant, old covenant, for us today particularly. Even for them, though, it should be triggering something, right? What do you think it should be triggering for them? Yeah, something new is on the horizon. It, in the old way that it was done this way, there's a new way of coming. And do you remember um, how sometimes the, uh, Christianity is referred to as the way, right? So there's a new way, there, and Hebrews talks about it, that at some point the old is going to be done away with, there's going to be something new established, right? There's going to be a new way to God according to Hebrews. So here we see, he, he's in this parable, he's saying, there's a piece of cloth from a, who who, no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Lois, explain that to us. Because you know this. I know you do. <laughs> Why do you not take a new piece of cloth and put it on an old piece of cloth for repair work? Okay. Yeah, so what's going to happen when that garment is washed later? Also, what do you know about the texture and strength of old versus new fabric? They're completely different. So the old is much more um, worn. It's more, it's more fragile, although it may still be in fairly good shape. But if you put a very stiff, newly woven piece of fabric onto it and st stitch it on there, what is going to happen every time that fabric has a movement? 
it's going to pull on it because the new is st is stronger and it's going to constantly be pulling against that older cloth. D if you're a quilter, you know this. You, this is why I, we have a friend, Carmen, who searches all over for older pieces of fabric that she can use to re do repair work on old quilts. You want old fabric that's still in really good shape to repair old fabric so that there is some continuity with it. Because if you put the new on the old, you literally destroy both. It doesn't work, and they will both be destroyed in the end. It won't hold water. It won't hold its weight. Okay, so that's the first example. Very good, Lois. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. I thought you're the expert on that. Okay, um, all right, let's see. The next one is um, the wineskin. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Wine Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skin. So it actually explains it for you there. It doesn't make it, but all you'd have to do is, is if you're a person who understands wine, wine skins, you already know that, okay, here, here's a better example for us today. How many, how many of you have got kids and grandkids and you've done water balloons with them before? And you, get, you fill the water balloon and, it, and it, uh, the water leaks out because you didn't quite get it filled, so you try to refill it again, then what often happens? <laughs> there goes the balloon. It bursts and it falls. Why? Because the balloon had already been stretched. Once you try to sec on a secondary try, try to refill that balloon, the it doesn't have the elasticity that it had the first time through. And now when the pressure hits it, it explodes. It busts. So that's exactly what he's saying here. He's saying you can't you can't refill the old. You can't use the old in, in order to put something new into it. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's true too. Right. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And if the, and if all the elasticity was already out of the skin because it had been used once already before, as it rises, it's going to simply burst that skin because the skin's not going to hold it. Okay. So, are you guys understanding now this these two parables at this point about the old versus the new and you they aren't compatible with one another you can't add the new into the old and the old uh, maintain it the old is going to break on you does that make sense it's going to fall apart and break okay now the last one was a little bit trickier it says but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and then he says in 39 and no one now, this one is a practical, we're out of the parable, and now we're into facts of life, okay? Realistically, if you are a person who likes wine, I don't, but if you like wine, you drink it. After drinking the old wine, now, in our case, we understand old wine is finer and better. That's not the point he's making here. He's saying if you have older wine, um, and after drinking the old wine, guess what you don't want now? And you don't want the new. Why? Well, maybe because you're used to the old. Okay, that, that's a possibility. And quite honestly, I mean, it could be if you really, really want to take this a variety of ways. You could say, well, because if you're used to the old, you just don't want to change. Right? All right. And? Huh? 
Right. Okay. Why, why would, in other words, apathy. Why would you want to change when you don't need to, especially if you've already been satisfied? Did you see that word satisfied? If you're satisfied with status quo, why would you want to move into something new? Right? And so what do you think Jesus means when he makes this statement in 39? It's a slightly different statement. The old one says, the old and new are not compatible, and now what is he saying? Yeah, if you, are, if you are not careful, if you are not paying attention, you are going to be satisfied with status quo and not be willing to move into the new. And he's saying, no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. Good enough for me. Was good enough for me, it's good enough for you. Have you heard that one before from our grandparents? <laughs> okay, so now... Here we are at the flow of thought. Does that make sense to you at this point? He sets up the next account by saying, basically, there's a new thing on board. There's something new coming. Let's put that on here. Something new is coming. So Jesus is setting them up. The, the, the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees were making that comparison about the disciples of their group or of John's group and making them, comparing them to Jesus' group. They were critical of the new. They were saying, what is this that you guys are doing? And I don't like it, right? So they were resisting this new thing. Jesus is getting ready then, as we move into chapter 6, he's going to make this move forward and start introducing yet what the new actually is all about. That's where we're at in chapter 6. A new thing has come, and Jesus is going to have to explain it because there's, there's been a problem. What have they always had before in, in regards to their spiritual faith walk? What has been the status quo for them? The law right? They had the rules and the regulations of the law. What happens often with people concerning um, their faith walk if they fall into a, um, a habitual pattern of just kind of by rote doing things? What happens? Yeah, they're, first of all, they're going to resist, which, show, which is exactly what he just said. They're going to resist anything new, there you go, and they lose the meaning of it. Often they, f they, are, they are no longer stopping to evaluate because what's happened is, is it's, it's kind of like driving. Have you ever been driving somewhere and you took the wrong road because you were on autopilot to go to the church? Oh, yeah, I've done that a 100 times. I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to the church, and I go, oh, man, I was supposed to be going the other direction <laughs> to go shopping at some store or to see my friend or whatever. And I realized because I'm on autopilot, this is what go Jesus is working with right now. He's, he is introducing something new to people who are on autopilot. Does that kind of lay out and set you up now to say, oh, I kind of see a little bit better what's going on in chapter 6. If they're on autopilot and he's trying to introduce something new and they're resisting it, so what is it that is going to transpire in chapter 6 is going to be that transition that's going to bring out the new message because he has entered into this new public ministry 
he's beginning to call disciples to follow him, and now he's going to explain to them what his mission is. This is my mission. This is where God is taking us. This is what the new deal is all about. This new way, way to God is all about. Okay. Yes. Oh, yes, that's a good point, very good point, because what we see, as a matter of fact, what he said, because um, when we get into 6, we're going to hit that conversation real deeply when you get down into verses 9, 10, and 11, where, where they hit the, the place about being filled with rage, and what it's going to do is start to reveal the hearts and what it is that Jesus is up against in, uh, in regards to entering or introducing this thing which is new so now you tell me let's just talk in generalities now I did something a little different of course I always do I'm so sorry <laughs> in the in the paragraph outline there were so many right again like a gazillion I was able to break it down to um, let's see one two three four one, two, three, four, two, f looks like four paragraphs, okay? So I, what I'm going to just give them to you up front to start with, just to give you a place to bounce from, and then we're going to fill them in together slowly as we move through. The first thing I, I see, and you tell me, what did you see in particular verses 1 through 11? But if you're careful to observe it, it actually goes all the way to verse 26. What is the major subject thing that's going on there? What's, what's going on in 1 through 11? He, he's, and what is he saying about the Sabbath? That he is the Lord. So he makes this emphasis that he is Lord, and in 1 through 11, the subject matter is about the Sabbath, right? What happens then the next segment? He chooses his disciples. Does, or his apostles, right, I'm so sorry, we will, we will clarify that. Now, when he picks his uh, uh, apostles, how does that flow in the thought from verses 1 through 11 into the next section? Very good. Okay, so now you guys see where I'm headed? So in all in, in, in we're going to break it down, but in, the, in that first 26 verses, it's all about him basically proclaiming, I am Lord, and he is assuming his lordship. He's, because he's entering into a new public ministry, he's now picked some disciple, disciples at that point to follow him. Now he's coming in and he's saying, okay, I am the Lord. Now he's going to systematically unveil uh, some real specific points uh, that show how he presented himself as being the Lord. Okay? So that's a major segment division and a or paragraph. And that paragraph breaks down into how he goes about displaying himself as Lord. We're going to look at that together. Okay, then you get into, um, uh, okay, that's through 26. Then we get to 27. That was a long one. It makes it hard for me to read this. Okay, so the next one um, is going to be a segment where we see Jesus is going to begin to teach what? The word, okay, and what concerning the word? 
there you go, how we are to live. Now, when you evaluate that and you looked at all of your points, what was the major emphasis on? And there was lots of different points. Well, there was love, love was major, but, but who's at the heart of, the, of all of those qualities about love, about forgiveness, about um, uh, praying, about blessing? Why are you to do all those things? What is, the, what is the backdrop, the catalyst that says this is why you're to do it? There you go. Because you are to be sons of the Most High God. And then he goes on to say in the very next verse, be merciful because why? Because your Father is merciful. Are you catching it? So what is it that ties together all of those qualities, including love, which you're right, uh, Rebecca, it's repeated probably the most, it, or the emphasis seems to be there the most, but this, this, the thing that is uh, propelling all of that, that's motivating all of that, is there's a reason why you're to do these things, right? Because our lives is not just about do, 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 there, it's why do I do, 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 right? Okay, well, we're going to get there a little bit more now. So that's in uh, 27 to 40. Then we do 41 to 45 is the next segment, the major segment that I saw. And what it was going on in that segment. Mm -hmm. Starting in verse 41, though, he's talking about what? Do not he's talking about taking this, why do you uh, take, try to take a little tiny speck out of your brother's eye, but not look at the plank that's in your own? What do we call that when somebody says to us, now, wait a minute, they're a hypocrite. You could be hip hypocritical in saying that you expect something, but when you yourself are not doing it. And the word hypocrite is in there, and there, there's a self-righteousness. And so what is he asking the, his disciples to do that would prevent all that? There you go. Examine yourself. So this is what the calling is. He's telling them what they're doing wrong, but there's a calling in it. And the calling is, this is what I want you to do as my disciples. If you're going to follow me, disciples, and my apostles, you need to be self-reflective. You need to, to, because we're going to talk about it more, but when it comes to judgment, is God saying we're never to judge anybody about anything? What did we just learn in 1 Corinthians about judging? We are to judge things, exactly. Because, and uh, by the way, start in the household of faith. And if your brother is committing a heinous crime, you need to expel that immoral brother, right? So there is judgment that needs to be made. And so I hope we have time to, to parse this one out a little bit uh, more carefully when we get there. But, but basically, as a, as a quick overview, I just want you to know that God is not saying we don't ever judge. But what is he saying here about his disciples? You must first check yourself out. If you're not doing that, you're still blind. And how are, is it possible for you to ever lead someone into salvation or lead them into this new way to me if you yourself are still walking in the old way and in darkness? Right? 
All right, then he then the very last segment is going to be 46 to 49. Now, are you guys kind of following me okay with how I broke this down? And those are bigger, chunkier pa uh, paragraph divisions. And then within each of those paragraphs, there are points on how he, he parses it out to explain it, right? The last one is really a, a call. What does he say in that verse 46? Why do you call me Lord? Now, there's where we have to really nail down our definition on, the, on what, what is a Lord. What is expected if you have a Lord, right? If there's a Lord over you or if you call someone Lord, what is it that's ex expected of you? So he's challenging them, isn't he? So what I saw was in 1 through 26, he's making a proclamation. In 27 to 40, he's teaching. Uh, in 41 to 45, he's exhorting. And then in 46 to 49, he's challenging. So he's challenging them in that last part that if you call me Lord, what must you be doing? Doing what I say, obeying me, acting on my words. Okay, that's our outline, big picture. So now I'm hoping that that's going to help your thinking as we kind of flow through this, uh, we're gonna, now we're going to basically go down into the nitty-gritty and, and try to dig out all the things that you looked at this week. Um, I think it's really helpful. It was very difficult for me this week to do that part because I kept trying to see so many pieces that it was, I was getting overwhelmed with so many parts, so many points, so many examples that he was giving that I couldn't like find chunks you know so I could anchor them together but I started in 1 to 26 and I started out just 1 to 11 then I went oh no it actually includes the next part so then I added in um, what was it 1 through um, 16 and then I went well you know what actually 17 to 19 covers that too so and, and then after I did that, I went, well, actually, 20 to 26 also is the same subject. So I ended up going all the way to 26 on my first segment. And then that breaks down into each of its presentations. So let's look at that together. We're going to be looking at how Jesus, in this part alone, how Jesus assumes his authority. And then we'll move into the teaching after that. So 1 to 26 is Jesus proclaims, I am Lord. And I pulled that off of just that one particular point where he says he is Lord of the Sabbath, but, but from that you can see how he keeps doing that in each of the next parts. Okay, so we see in then 1 through 11... He says he is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's talk about that, what you learned about being Lord of the Sabbath, and why is that significant? Tell me, let's go ahead and define Lord right now, just for the fun of it. Tell me what Lord is. What did you define it as? Okay, Master. What else? Pardon? The one who owns you. And if he owns you, then he can do what? He can tell you what to do. <laughs> it's kind of like a mom and a dad. I can tell you what to do because I'm the mom, right? 
all right? It doesn't necessarily mean that we'll do it. It just means I'm taking that authority. Okay, what else do we know? Master, controller, that's a good word. Ruler, authority, correct? The one, one with authority, one who exercises authority. Which, by the way, when I did that word definition, that's how I picked up on 1 through 26. Jesus is exercising his authority. And so that's how I started tying all of those pieces of those verses 1 through 26 together with one thread that kind of went through the whole thing. So Pharisees were, what were they doing in verse 2? When they made, when they quoted this verse to him, what were they doing? Mm -hmm. And so what, when they posed a question to him, right, what is the question actually doing there in regards to Jesus? If he's the Lord, there's an, it's an accusation or a challenge, isn't it? I mean, they're actually challenging his authority, right? Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well... So the Pharisees are actually challenging him. Right, in the previous chapter, right. So we'd already seen a prelude to it, which is, I think, why he closes chapter uh, 5 with the fact that there's something new on board. There's something new coming. And he also, in this, although in this particular book, it seems like he's not quite as... Um, the emphasis is not to prove that he is the king that's come, right, which was Matthew's emphasis. But here he's trying to prove something a little bit different. And we're still parsing it out a little bit. But the first thing he's saying here is, look, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And he titles it by saying, what does he call himself there? It's his favorite title in this book. The Son of Man. I, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And before, as you said, he says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he's letting them know that he's who? That he is God. That he has that authority, has that right. So right now, the, in this particular account, the flow of it is he is establishing his lordship, that he is the Lord. Yes. Okay. Yes, you're right. You want to cover some of that for us? And even more, and even worse than that, they're also the spiritual leaders, and therefore. If nothing, you know the difference. When you get a spiritual leader who also has a political agenda, this is why America was established with separation, right? Um, when you get a political person who is also in charge of your spiritual soul, they have a lot of power over you emotionally, if nothing else, right? Yes, 
Jesus is coming and putting a threat to their authority and their position. And their The other thing that's really interesting is, although the Pharisees are not the priests, they are in cahoots with the priests, the high priests. And they have these this inner circle of uh, good old boys club, so to speak, that's going on at that time. And so w- if Jesus is coming to be the great high priest who understands our infirmities, right, and has gone through what we've gone through, he, he, is be, he is also challenging the fact that the high priest is holding a position of power and where, he's, and where he stands in the eyes of the community. It's something new, and he's going to usurp all that. As a matter of fact, when it's all completed, he's going to say, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so, but yet, what does that mean when once his work was finished concerning the old temple system and the work of the priests and the Pharisees and all them? What? They lose their jobs. Their jobs are done. So it's a big threat for them. So the Pharisees are challenging his authority here. If you didn't catch that, that's a real significant point in the opening of this chapter, which I think sets us up for everything else. One little tiny question. If you, and it's easy to, sw- to just kind of pass it by. But if you're really evaluating what's going on here, and this is, this is the challenge in, in doing inductive Bible study. It's, it's yes, get the homework done, but now really chew on this. Think it through. What is really going on here? What is the subliminal message? And what is he overtly even saying? And when he uses a parable, why does he use a parable? What is the purpose for using a parable? I don't think we ever answer that. There you go. It keeps the 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 real oppressors or the real uh, uh, aggressors against him from fully understanding what he's talking about and doing because he doesn't want the full wrath of him on him yet right he's right now at the beginning of all of this and he needs to keep them calmed down to a degree but he wants to speak to those who have hearts to hear who have ears to hear right so that they will know what what he is t- preaching, what is t- what he is bringing in that's new. Okay, so that's that's verse two, that he, he the Pharisees challenge him, and then Jesus rebuts them. Right? Tell me how he goes about doing that. Have you never heard what David did? Now, did anything in your mind go ding, ding, ding? This sounds like something we just read. There you go. Just like when he was in the wilderness and he had the temptation and the oppression of the devil on him, the way that Jesus was victorious over that challenge, over that temptation, they call it there, was to quote scripture. So what does Jesus do here? He quotes the scripture, a scripture they're familiar with, and he uses basically their own. Because by the way, what did they use when they challenged him? The law. Isn't that interesting? They didn't go into any specific law, but they just kind of threw out a carte blanche, and boy, does the world do that or what? They just take kind of a real big, broad statement that can mean a million different things, and they either twist it to say, see, that's what they meant, or to say, see, that's not what they meant. I mean, they use it either way. And in this case, what they're doing to Jesus is saying, 
the law says this, and you're, you're breaking the law. And so Jesus then comes back, and he uses the same law, this, and he uses the same tactics that he used to defeat Satan. He uses it against the Pharisees. Now, stop and think. Do you see now how the, the time in the wilderness was preparatory for him entering into public ministry? Just by this one little demonstration. God allowed him to go through that because what did it do? It pre prepared him for the work he had ahead in his ministry. This is important for you and I, right? Have you ever been through a challenge? Um, can you think of a time when you went through a challenge that later on you went, man, I'm glad I went through that, even though at the time I didn't like it? Have there been times like that in your life? There sure have been for me where I've hated what I had to go through. It was painful. It was disturbing. It was hurtful, whatever. But in the end and in hindsight, somewhere later in my life, maybe, short, maybe quickly or sometimes longer, but in I either case, that experience, that testing, that time of trial in my life prepared me to handle the next thing. So Jesus is demonstrating that to us, that he himself went through that. He endured testing. He finished that successfully. And then he, when he entered ministry, the very first test that he gets, again, is a challenge. And his reply is, it is written. Have you not heard, right? So he, re he rebuts there by quoting the, himself, quoting with scripture and where does he quote it's out of first Samuel uh, 21 6 and I don't know if you if you actually went in there or not and looked at that but these thi this section right here is verses 1 through 5 that we've just covered by looking at he uh, that's a 2 not a 21 that was why I was confused okay so he quotes scripture there that was in verse um, 3, right? But verses 1 through 5, then he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, 1 through 11. When he, when he re rebuked them, or rebutted, I should say, rebutted what they challenged him with, um, what was his rebuttal doing for them at that point? What was he teaching them? Do you remember, you, got, you and I looked up some verses. We looked up, uh, if you go into 6 through 11, let's do that first. and That will help, I think, clear a little bit more. Then he goes on another Sabbath. So he has, this happened on one Sabbath. Now another Sabbath comes around, and again he has another, another challenge coming. He enters the synagogue, he was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he'd heal on the Sabbath. So in other words, they were really trying to set him up, weren't they? They let you know that there's something amiss um, so that they might find reason to accuse him. Their hearts were already angered and already agitated towards this new thing that he was doing, right? But he knew that they, what they were thinking. So what does that tell us? 
Okay, he's. Okay, and how is and yeah. Okay, and the fact that he knew what they were thinking before they even said it tells us what about him. He is still God. This is God, but this is God in flesh. So he knew what they were thinking, and then he said to the man with the weather hand, get up and come forward. He got up and he came forward, and Jesus said to them, what? This was stellar. Talk about throw it back at them and then let them squirm to try to come up with an answer, right? I love this. I ask you, okay, is it lawful to do good? Or to, do, or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it. Now, if you're a person who doesn't like what he's doing, but it's obvious that what he's doing is good, right? He's enhancing someone's life. How are you going to answer that question if you don't want him doing that on the Sabbath? Are you boxed in? Yeah. So he really got them boxed in there. He, he, so after looking around at them all, he said to, to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was destroyed. And then it closed. Oh, I'm sorry, restro- restored. I'm sorry. It was destroyed. It was restored. You're right. That was a really bad. I'm so <laughs> Not good. I'm writing my own scriptures. <laughs> it, was, it was the Pharisees' hands that were destroyed. <laughs> That's what I really meant. That's right. He destroyed them. Thank you. See, there's one, there's one heart of compassion in the room. Okay. So his hand was restored, but they themselves were filled with rage, and they discussed together what, what they might do with Jesus. So now what we see then Take these two records of how they were challenging him in this new way that he was uh, presenting to them, the new thing that he was bringing in. What was he doing when he explained to them about the fact that he was Lord of the Sabbath, for instance? Um, Kay asked us to look at a couple things. We looked at Exodus 23, and you looked at Mark 2, right? And in these two things, what did you learn about the, concerning the law uh, when it came to the Sabbath? What did the law say in, in Exodus? Yeah, you are to work six days, but you are, by law, by God's law, you are to rest on the Sabbath, right? And is that a, is that a truth? Yes, okay. So, he, so truthfully, if, if you want to look at technically through the old system, they were, at, they were correct. But what do you look at when you look at the New Testament reference in Mark 2 that she had us look at? There you go. So if you think about those two put coupled together now, what do you see Jesus is doing regarding their thinking? What is he trying to do for them? There you go. Because the, the problem was they had gotten to the point where what? 
That's it. They had fallen into this pattern of legalistic ritual repetition. They were on autopilot concerning things, so they weren't really thinking it through, number one. And secondarily, they were so legalistic about it, they had lost the value of why they were resting on the Sabbath. Now, you and I know from doing our other uh, studies on the subject of the rest, what is entering into the rest of God? What is the picture in that all about to begin with? It's yeah, there you go. It's Hebrews 3 and 4, isn't it? It's all about salvation. The, the picture in the rest is that who did the work? Jesus did, or God did, right? In the Genesis record and in the Exodus account where they're talking about, God created everything in seven days. He did it all. Everything that you see, everything that we do, everything that's provide, everything is provided for us, everything was created by him and for him, right? And so he did it all. And the day of rest is so that you and I can reflect on the fact that he did it all. And that there's nothing that we do that, that really matters. It, 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 it does not matter. We can't do anything for ourselves. We can't even give ourselves life or breath. But God did. And we are to, therefore, do what in response? There you go. To give thanks. To worship him. Right? So to, to recognize him, uh, like it says in Hebrews 11, to acknowledge that God is and that he is a rewarder of those that love him. That light is trying to go out, huh? Okay, so now he says, so basically he's, it, that's what he's saying there. Go to Romans 7, 6. There is a new way that Jesus came to proclaim according to chapter 5, the end of chapter 5. And so here's another verse. I really liked this one because I think it kind of clarifies it even more carefully when he says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? In this question, he is leading them into this new way of thinking. And then secondarily, there's another thing. But let's do, hit that one first. Romans 7, 6. Wow. So not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Do you see that? That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to teach them the spirit of the law, and he's releasing them from the letter of the law. Because very soon that law, that temple code, is going to be done away with completely. They're not going to be making sacrifice at the temple any longer because it's going to be a finished work. In just three and a half years, he's going to go to the cross, and it is going to truly be finished. And so there's that. And then the second thing, what we see him doing is he's actually exposing something. Go, if you go back to verse 11, what is it that was their response? They were enraged, right? So you, what you saw was their heart. He says, uh, he's, he asks them, is it, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? What were they proposing in their hearts? What was their plotting that was going on in their hearts? They were going to do harm to him, do you, and it says he knew it. Yes. They were. They were just waiting for an opportunity to get him, right? And so it's very interesting to me that then what he does is he, in his rebutting of their challenging him, he also exposes to them in a subtle way that, I know what you're up to. I know exactly what you're up to. 
you have rage in your heart, you are resisting my word, you do not like this new way, and you have become basically the tempter in my life. You are, the, you are like the devil. You are the one, the adversary that comes against, who seeks to devour whom he can. And so he, he literally exposes that in that first, um, those first 11 verses. So we, Jesus, what is Jesus doing? Jesus teaches his new way. Um, I think that's good enough. Okay, we'll just leave it there. Okay, now let's go on to the next section. So that's where we start in this about Jesus d expressing and letting them know that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He has that authority to be Lord of the Sabbath. And he very, in a very stealth way, exposes their hearts to them, lets them know he knows. And he also says, this is the new way. And it's the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law that I want you to understand. Yes. <laughs> that's good oh that's good so their rage is stupidity and what was the other word folly I love that that's really good good one <laughs> I didn't look that one up that's excellent okay so our next section is going to be 12 to 16 the next paragraph underneath the title that Jesus Jesus is proclaiming um, his authority and we see here what it, what happens in 12 to 16 Jesus prays all night, and then what does he do? He chooses, or he chose, um, 12 to be apostles. Now, what did you learn about the distinction between a disciple and an apostle? Okay, very good. So on the one hand, one is one who follows and is a learner or a pupil or a student, correct? But when it came to, to selecting out of the disciples, and there were many disciples that were there with him, right? It shows that there were quite a few, actually. Now he's going to pick just 12. So what is the thing about the prayer all night? Why is that added in here, do you think? I love that. In a way, I always, I thought it's like a long-distance call home. Hi, Dad. <laughs> okay, here's the next thing on the agenda, you know. I, I just love the, the, the whole idea, but obviously it also teaches us something, right? What does it teach us? Yeah. Don't forget to pray before you make big decisions, right? Because, but it's very interesting to me about the 12 that he chose, and it wasn't part of the homework discussion here but one of them was J Judas who did what who betrays him and yet think about it Jesus spent all night in prayer and chose that one also so it's it, it and as you and I both know there were there was a distinctive plan even for Judas the one who betrayed him that he had to be among them in order for the things to unfold in the way that that God wanted them to unfold 
But it, and it also teaches us about uh, people who are called into ministry sometimes. What else does it teach us? They're not always true. Just know that. I mean, I do think it's it's not really a part of our our dis, our um, study per se, but I do think it is very um, advantageous, I guess, for you and I to understand that just because a person is called into a ministry and that they're on staff does not always mean that they love the Lord or that they belong to the Lord. Just know that, that there are going to be occasionally um, wolves in sheep's clothing. And Jesus talks about this actually in other discussions. And it's just kind of a subtle thing that's kind of pops itself up to me as I'm looking at this. But when I was thinking and pondering about the part that Jesus prayed all night, and yet he chose one that was not faithful to him, one who would betray him, one who later is described as the son of Satan. And so what you now know by that statement, the fact that it was, you know, in the written gospel of the word of God, this man did not know God, but he was there. He was a part of the ministry. He was, he was actively involved with the other 11. He looked like he belonged to the outsiders, right? No, they all looked. Is it me? Is it me? Which means they learned this lesson here really well when, about when we get to the end. <laughs> No, they all self-evaluated. <laughs> they can. They absolutely can. I think that's an, it's a subtle thing, and I'm just kind of I'm trying to not make it a big lesson, but I just want to bring that up because I do think it's an important point for us to know. I know that I have had um, sometimes some contentious conversations with people who, uh, you know, are dismayed by behaviors of some leaders and of, of some big names even. And, and, you know, the question has to be, are they truly gods? You know, when we get into the part where it talks about the trees and the fruits, this is where Jesus himself warned us, you need to look at the fruit of the person's life, not just what's coming out of their mouth. Many will say unto you, Lord, I, Lord call me Lord, Lord. And I will say unto them, I knew you not. Depart from me into eternal darkness. So you have to be aware of that. So Jesus himself, he prays all night. He chose his 12 apostles. So in doing that, if you, if you understand the title or the, de or the definition, rather, of an apostle, an apostle is a delegate or a messenger. It's one who's sent with orders, but it's even more than that. It's he that is sent by another who gives him authority to go. So what does, how does this fit in the flow of thought about the subject that he says, I am the Lord? Yes. He is the one who has the authority and he dispenses authority. And so he's demonstrating that to us right here at the very beginning of, of a brand new ministry. He's just starting the ministry. He's just calling disciples. And now what we see is he's picking the 12 ap apostles specific. And in doing that, in this flow of thought, here he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And here he says, I'm Lord of my inner circle as well. I'm going to pick those who will be mine. And they will be my delegates. And I will send them forth with my message. Pretty cool. Okay, so that's... Tw uh, uh, 12 to 16. Now we're going to do 17 to 19. 
is the next part of this lordship teaching. How does he present himself as Lord there? What does it say that he does there? Pardon? Yeah. So there were people that were, it was interesting. Who were these people? Where were they coming from? Everywhere in that surrounding area, all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, right? And they all came, and it says a large crowd of his disciples came. So here he picked out just 12 to be his apostles, but when it talks about the disciples, often there was a large crowd of disciples who were following him. Sometimes in other passages, we've seen him even say to them, "Um, you're not going to leave me also, are you? to his own disciples. I remember in uh, Matthew, I think it's in chapter 6, he preaches the Sermon on the Mountain, and then when he's done, some of them did not like what he said toward the end. And and, and And he actually turns to his own disciples, those who are his followers, and he says about them, as the crowds are leaving, the masses are leaving, he says to disciples, you're not going to leave me also, are you? And so... Jesus is Lord. He has disciples. He has apostles. They're calling them. Here we see these large masses. This is a crowd of disciples that have come to see him from all over in that region. And they've come to do what? To be healed. Now, when you first read these few verses here, tucked in the middle of the Lord of the Sabbath, him choosing his uh, disciples, and now this miracle, does this seem a little bit odd to you? Did it seem like it was out of, why is this one little two or two or three verses here mentioned about Jesus healing them, about the power that was coming from him, and, and the fact that it says literally he was healing all of them? What do you see in this particular segment that's going on here? What's being presented to us in this flow of thought? There there you go. It again, yes. So Jesus heals. All who came to him. He displayed his, his power was coming from him. So he displayed his power. Yeah, there you go. His power and authority to heal. Right? Right. So exactly, and and I think you know if you if you really are able to see how what he's doing is presenting himself as Lord, his authority to do all kinds of things, his authority over the word, his authority to to basically uh, change a system into something new, to say yes, that was the system, 
By the way, God established that, but I'm telling you, I'm establishing something new. Wow, equality with God right there, right? I am God. I, it's my word. I'm explaining to you what was really meant in it. And so he's bringing them into a new way of thinking. He's revising their understanding. And in doing this, he's establishing his lordship, his power, his authority, right? And then he goes, uh, he displays it again by choosing his apostles, those he's going to send out. And then he displays his power by actually healing people, by, by doing these healings. Um, yeah. Yes, and unclean spirit, all of that. Yes. Okay, good. All right, now the next part is um, 20 to 26. Following in the same pattern here, uh, his Lord. And why do you think it's important that at the beginning of his ministry, he starts here? Think back to the close of chapter 4, I think it was, where the genealogy was given. Who were most people thinking Jesus was? The son of Joseph. And the lineage is given, and it just kind of places him back into the human factor. And that's true. He had a human quality. He came as the son of man. But he, he then at his baptism and taking on the new identity, he is now the son of God. And with that, then he is saying, because everyone understood that, in, in, particularly in the messianic concept of this is the Messiah, the Christ who was promised, they are, they are understanding this is God come in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, right? So he is literally saying, this is who I am. I am Christ the Lord who is born, and I am, therefore, the Lord. I am God. And so he's right at the beginning of his ministry. The first thing, that I as this author is trying to give us a consecutive order of unfolding events, he's establishing for you and I an understanding that Jesus, from the very beginning of his ministry, said, I am the Lord. This is not a secret. Uh, he wasn't hiding it, although he was, he was um, cloaking it from the adversaries who were going to rise up from him. But to those who had ears to hear, he was speaking plainly. He used parables, but they understood it. He spoke to those who had ears to hear. And they were the ones that he was came, came to save, were the ones who, who were poor in spirit because they understood their need for a Savior to come. Where it seems like the establishment, if you think about it, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, why do you think they were so locked into the rules and the regulations? Yeah, it made them in charge. They were the Lord right? They didn't want to give up that power and authority. So Jesus is saying, no, I am the Lord. I am the Christ. I am the one that you've been waiting for, you know, generations to come. I am here now. Is that the first thing he has to do at the beginning of this, of this ministry layout? So what, what Luke does for us is he lays it out consecutively saying, so now the first thing he does is say, say to us, I am the Lord. So we're, that's the picture we're getting. So in 20 to 26, uh, what does Jesus promise in that? What does he promise? He says, blessed and woe, correct? 
and in that blessed and woe, I'm not going to have room to write it, so I'm not going to do this part of it. It's on my chart for you. But what does he say about those who are blessed and those and what and what is the woes about? What did you evaluate once you got through all that? There you go. Would you call that a new message? He is revising the old law and bringing it into a new spiritual truth that is that is compatible with the old. All it is is it's taking the old and putting it into um, a, a law written on the heart. Do you guys remember that verse? Ezekiel 36. I think it's 25 uh, and 26 in Ezekiel 36 that he says, uh, In that day I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit in you and then do what? Cause you to walk in my precepts and statutes. Because it's going to be written on the heart by the spirit, not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Isn't that amazing? That is what he's, this is what the blessed and the woes are all about. It's showing the new way to God, the new covenant of the Lord by the power of the spirit on the heart so that you're living out the truth of the message rather than the letter of the law. They had taken what was good because remember one of the things Paul talks about is, well, then if the law is obsolete, then is the law bad? And the answer is no, it had its purpose, right? It led people to God. It showed them their sin. It showed them their need of a Savior. It was a tutor that to lead men to Christ. Exactly. But here what we're seeing then, and he's saying, now I'm going to teach you something new. And he does what you said. What one of you said. Upside down kingdom. It's exactly what it is. Yes. How is that in conflict to the law that they had before? How did the Pharisees and Sadducees see uh, being poor and being hungry and weeping and men that hate you? What would they call that? Yes, that's exactly right. Go back to Deuteronomy 28 in your thinking. If you, if you don't know, you can flip it open there. But in Deuteronomy 28, it's the blessings and the cursings, right? Where God says, if you, if you obey me, I will bless you. And what were the blessings? You're, you're not going to be poor. You're not going to be hungry. You're not going to weep. Your enemies are going to be kept at bay. You're, they're not going to hate you and come after you and pursue you and overpower you. I'm going to protect you. That's what the old law did, right? If you obey, I will keep you from all these things. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees' concept of what Jesus was saying was like, what? <laughs> right? What? This doesn't make sense. If you are poor now, yours is the, the kingdom of heaven. If you hunger now, you shall be satisfied. And they're looking at that going, oh, wait a minute, if you're hungering now, it's because God's judgment's on you. You are a sinner. You've done something wrong. If you get sick, it's because you are, have messed up somewhere. You need to repent. But Jesus is saying what? The opposite. Everything, it's, it's an upside-down kingdom. Woe to you who are rich. Now, here's very interesting. He, so then he flips it over. Then he goes, okay, you Pharisees, if you, you who are rich, you are receiving your comfort in full right now. Everything you're going to ever get out of 
doing all the legalistic rituals that you're doing, you've got it, it. This is it. Your reward is already paid in full. That that's if you really think about that, people who want to legalistically follow God's word in that manner, what a sad thing to think that this is it. This is all you get for your reward. That's true. That is true, too. Right. You're right. He's showing this is the shadow and there's a reality coming. That's true. Yes. Okay. So now we can finish our title. So his promises are for eternal reward. Right? That's what he was doing. And in doing that, and in promising them, I'm going to give you this and this and this and this. And if men treat you this way, don't worry. I'm going to give you this. And if this happens in your life, don't you worry. If you do all that, I'm going to give you this. Right? So he's actually promising them eternal rewards. So, again, how does that fit with our flow of thought about him being the Lord? Who can, who can bestow upon you reward? Only God. Who's in who's in charge of eternal things only God so by saying literally in his sermon he is saying Rebecca I am going to give to you these things don't you worry if you are poor now and you are and you are hungry now and you are being persecuted by men don't you worry I am going to give you a reward in heaven and it's great if you think about that that is, whoa, you're either God or you're arrogant, right? I mean, you, either you as a person hearing him in that moment are going to say to yourself, wow, this is really God. This is God come in flesh. This is the Messiah, the Christ. This is the one, the Redeemer, the Savior. Or you are going to say, who do you think you are? Wow. So we ha do we have both responses that happens throughout his whole ministry in this regard? There are those who look at that and become very angered at him and enraged. You're, that's, oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. You, it's, you're, it's, you're either the Lord or you're a liar. I love that. That's where he takes him, them to see. So he gives us blessed versus woe, right? Those are the contrasts, and we see those from, uh, is it 20 to 26, right? It's the whole, the whole thing is about that. But in that, he's making promises of, about eternity, and it says Jesus basically is exercising his authority as, as Lord. He was pronouncing these blessings and these woes and, and by taking understanding to a, a new place as well. He, he was turning their kingdom, or their understanding upside down. 
Okay, that's what uh, Brenda made mention of. Okay, so these statements by Jesus were a radical change and a contrast to their interpretation of cursing and blessing that was given to them in the law. Uh, Deuteronomy 28. You might want to just note that, but that's where you go to look to see what their concept was. Their original concept was if you're, if you're, if you're doing God's will, you're going to be blessed and you're going to be happy and you're going to be rich and you're going to be protected. Now in this new kingdom, the opposite is probably going to be true. Now why is that? Why, is it, why can't we have the, the other system? <laughs> if we're actually pleasing God, wouldn't it be nice? to be in the here and now and say, you know, as long as I'm pleasing God, I'm going to be blessed. I'm going to be rich. What do we call that teaching that we have so prevalently in our world today anyway? It's a false teaching, prosperity teaching, right? People says, oh, God wants you rich. God wants you wealthy. God wants you happy. God wants you owning a million-dollar car. There's a commercial on TV. Have you guys seen it? where they're talking about checks coming in the mail. I prayed for this and I prayed for that, and God and I had the $30,000 came in the mail. Now my mortgage is all paid off. I mean, it's on TV in a commercial. Uh, and it's a, it's a commercial for a man who is promoting this prosperity teaching. And it's, it's very similar to what we see here, what's going on with these Pharisees at that time that Jesus is going up against is to teach them the opposite is going to be true in this new covenant, in this new way. True. That's true. Okay, and so you br- you bring up a very good point, Lisa. So, in essence, when you evaluated the blessings and the cursings, and you looked at the subject of being poor, of being hungry, and of weeping, and did you, if you did, did you go and look at your synoptic teachings on it in Matthew or in Mark or in John even? Uh, what did you see it meant to be poor? Is it just talking about material wealth? Okay, it, it also can be poor in spirit, right? It, could, it can be taken either way depending on context. In this context, what do you think is the emphasis? Yes, it's about the eternal kingdom, so it's about spiritual poorness, right? So in it, if he says uh, that you're Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. He's literally saying blessed or happy are those who recognize what? Their poverty, their need of who? Of him, of God, right? Their need of his his protection, of his blessing, of his presence, literally. They have a need for him specifically. Well, yeah, exactly, because actually the word poor, did anybody look up the word poor? Somebody look up the word poor? I I don't know that it was in the homework. Uh, Poor said it means reduced to beggary, lowly, afflicted, helpless, powerless to accomplish an end, lacking in anything, to be humble or to be poor in spirit. Now, when you go into Matthew, he literally adds that part of the phrase in there, poor in spirit. So if you see this teaching, now there's an argument, is this a synoptic uh, observation of the same event of the, of the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount, or is it a second one? 
And what comes into play here is the, they, they argue over the fact that it talks about they came to a level plain area, right, where he did the preaching. Now, if you're on a large mountain, are there level areas on large mountains? Yes, okay. That would be my first thing to say. If you are looking at the scriptures on the whole, this is how the synoptics work. You lay the scriptures out next to one another, and you, you follow the progression, because as you're progressing through each of these books, they're basically progressing through some of the same storylines. Once in a while, one one gospel will drop something, or he will add something extra in. We know, for instance, in Matthew, there's quite a bit more added to this than what we get here, right? But is it following what, even before and after, basically the same flow of thought? Is it following the same pattern of unfolding of his life? The answer is yes. So if when you lay everything else next to it, and you see comparisons, for instance, when it talks about him choosing his disciples and the naming of them, would you call that synoptic? And it's clear that it's the same conversation. Then why would the next section not be also the same flow of thought, just adding to or leaving out? It's either synoptic or it's not, is my thought. And the fact that this particular author adds in about the plane, it's very easily explained by understanding that when you have a large mountain, there can be an area, when it makes sense that he would find an area where it was fairly level for him to set up with his people around him and then to begin to teach from the Sermon on the Mount. We went to there in, in uh, Israel. Have you guys been there to the, to the sermon? What did you see there? What do you remember about anything special? Yes. So, uh, I mean, it, it just makes logical sense. But he, here's the bottom line about that. We aren't going to argue about it. The, the point is, also would be, if Jesus preaches and teaches something to a group, do you think there might have been a need to repeat it again at some other time? So the possibility could be, okay, so if you really just say, well, it's not the same, okay, fine, he taught it again. But he basically taught the same thing again, right? So when you look into Matthew and he's preaching this basically the same message, there when he speaks about the one who's poor, he says poor in spirit. He adds that in. And the fact that in this one he's making promises about eternal rewards, then it also takes you to understand that when he's speaking about being poor, he's not necessarily speaking about just financial wealth. But the Pharisees would see it that way. The Pharisees would think financial because that was the blessings and cursings of the old law. So you see, again, it's, it's taking the kingdom of God and turning it upside down on its head. It's a new way in faith. All right, so hunger. What, it, what are you hungering for? What does it mean to hunger? To suffer want, to be needy, to crave, to ar ar or to crave ardently. That's a big word. Uh, to seek with eager desire. So... How would you translate hunger? Hunger for what? Okay. To hunger after God himself. Okay. What, anything else that you would hunger, that you might be in that, I mean, yes, God himself. And is there anything else that you might, if you're a person who's hungering, what, what might you be hungering for? You and I today. The word of God itself. What are you and I hungering for for our society today? Righteousness. Oh, my gosh. Don't you? I just keep saying to, to the Lord in, under my breath and at the top of my lungs sometimes, 
God, please come. Please come quickly. This world is in chaos. They're absolutely insane. What is good is evil. What is evil is good. They have turned your word and your ways completely on its head. And the darkness is so dark that sometimes there's just this oppression. I hunger. I hunger for the day of God's righteousness. When he will come and rule and reign in righteousness, I hunger for that. Do you not? Do you not hunger for his presence? I mean, I, there's, there's some days when I just think I just want to be with the Lord. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. I know. It's like I can't live, I can't stand to be about, <laughs> yes. I know. It's like I can't stop watching it, but I hate it when I'm watching it because it makes me so angry. But on the other hand, I keep going back to it and watching it anyway. I know. It is. Well, it's not just addictive, but it's, I, I do think that there's, the, 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 problem, the problem is, you're right, keeping the anger down so that when you are, so in this unfolding message, he's going to take us there and he's going to talk to us about our hearts and how we, how we respond to these people who are like this in the world. So we see Jesus promises eternal rewards in those 20 to 26. Now let's move to 27. Now what we're going to get into is a segment where Jesus is teaching. And on the whole, what is it that we have come to see that Jesus is teaching us to, to be like? To be like God himself, to be like your father. He teaches, be like your father. Now, that helps a whole lot. Once you get that title over all of these segments, it's very easy then to see the flow of thought on this, and we shouldn't, we should be able to go through this. Now, yes. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. Because don't we want people to say good things about us? I know, and I can tell you, I personally am, am very vulnerable in this area because I am a people pleaser. And when people come against me and say hurtful things to me or, you know, yell at me or something, I mean, I, it crushes me and it takes me days sometimes to pick myself up because I feel so hurt. So it's easy to want the good words of people around you. It's very easy to fall into that. At some point, and this study has been really helpful to me um, in that regards, to keep your eye on remembering who is it that you are to please. You're not going to please men of the world, and there are people in this world who are going to hate you for no reason at all. They're just going to not like you. And if you are more concerned about whether they like you, or and in particular, in this case, he's literally saying, for my name's sake, he says in there. What, what, why are you doing it in verse 22? For the sake of the Son of Man, if you are enduring these things, for this, I'm going to put that up here, for the sake of the Son of Man. If that's what's, is that 22 again? 22, okay. So if you are doing these things, if you are, if you are enduring these, woe, these blessedness and woes, I mean, he says you're blessed, but really it's a woe, you know. If you are being persecuted, if you are poor, if you are hungry, if this is what's 
going on within your heart and your soul and you're hungering for God to come and you're anxious for him to be there, if you are weeping over sin that you see around you and the world around you about things like abortion and about homosexuality and these things that the world would look at you and say, you can't even say that anymore. You can't even say it, that it's wrong or you're going to be crucified by somebody. And yet God's word is clear on the teachings on that. And he says, if you weep over sin, he says, you are, he says, you are actually going to be blessed. Happy are those who weep and mourn over sin and its consequences. Everything from death that comes into the world, weeping over the death of people and knowing where they probably have landed, or weeping over the fact that sin is present and alive and kicking in our Congress right now to kill a baby all the way up to the, after delivering on the table. I, what, what did they call that word? It's a fun, infanticide. I mean, really, it was to, to have a baby delivered and then have a conversation about whether you're going to either, maybe, maybe not kill it, but just not give it any water or food and let it die. I'm assuming that's what he was talking about. Just don't give the child any aid to survive, and it'll just die on its own. And they call that not murder. Oh, I know. Makes makes me, enrages me. There you go. We're enraged again, Rebecca. You and me. <laughs> See, it took me that long. <laughs> okay, so this is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but all of this goes back to it's because of your relationship with the, as a disciple, you and I are disciples of God, of Christ. And as his disciples, the world is going to come against us. We are going to have a tug of war with the world, and it won't even matter. Even if you are doing good as Jesus was healing a man with a weathered hand, they're going to, they're going to look at, at him and see what he's doing, and they are going to be enraged at him. And they will be enraged at you as well. All you have to do is be present in the room and have done nothing, and they will attack you sometimes. And you'll think, what did I do, right? What, did I, what, what in the world did I do that? And I know. And sometimes you're right. Sometimes they others do it, and then you do it, and then you get in trouble, right? And you're like, well, how come they're mad at me? It's, it's about the light bearer. It's about being a light bearer. If you are carrying the light and the love of God in your heart and you are present, often that's all it takes. You don't even have to say anything. And it can become that thing which enrages them. Jesus had not done anything yet. They were watching, though, just waiting for a moment to pounce. Right? Yeah. Okay, so 27, now let's move on. we got to hurry. 27 to 40 is a lovely list on ways that we are going to be like our Father. Let's just list them really quick because I know you've got your list done. But Jesus was teaching here to be like the Father. To be like your Father. Um, somebody read that verse about being like your Father. Because it talks about the, the word son as well. And I don't know if you looked up the word son, but I want to catch that. Ver, is it verse 35? Now, think, on, think of that one. Think it through just a little bit. What is a son? What is a son? It's an heir. Okay. 
It's a child, obviously. So if you're a child of God, if you're a, a son, um, I was I always think of that so that song goes through my head. My I, my father's eyes. It's an old old one. Do you remember that? I have my father's eyes. Amy Grant. Yeah. Okay. Well, in this case, it's saying, do I have my father's heart? Right. And so, if you have your father's heart, you're going to be sons of the of the Most High God. And as a son, you're going to resemble. Does a does a son not generally resemble his daddy? I mean, most in most cases, just by rule of thumb, a son will resemble physically, even and through mannerisms and and habits and and patterns of speech, even they will resemble. I know I resemble my mother, for instance, and it's kind of the same concept. But you're going to resemble your parent. So we are to resemble our parent in what way? So what was the list of things that we looked at this week? What are you supposed to do? First one was love. Okay. What else? Just l tick them off for me. Okay. Do good for those who hate you. Bless again. I love that one. There you go. Pray for them. Oh, oh boy, is that one hard? Is it hard to pray for someone that actually hates you? who does wrong by you, who treats you badly, who, who does so in according to this text specifically because you love the Lord, simply by the fact that you that for the sake of the Son of Man who, who you represent in the world, they hate you. Okay, so you're going to pray for them. What is that going to do for you when you pray for them? How is that going to help? Anything. Yeah. According to... Um, Psalms, I think it's 80. It says, I, I envied the wicked, right, until I entered into the sanctuary of God, and then I saw their final demise. So people who hate you, people who don't know God, and they hate you because you do know God, and, if, and basically if that's what, now if you've done wrong, then you deserve you know, some kind of wrath on occasion, right? And we all do that on occasion. We'll do something wrong. But if you didn't really do something wrong, but rather you just annoyed them because of your presence, for in some, you don't even know what happened. It just happened. He, he, God says pray for them because what happens when you enter into the sanctuary of God, you see their final demise, and then you understand. You understand them better. And this is what he's saying to them. You're to love them. You're to bless them. You're to do good to them. Because if you actually understand their situation, what is that going to do? You're actually going to turn your heart around. You're going you're to now, instead of be angry at them for what they did, you're going to feel bad for them because you're going to understand that there is something going on there that that's raging within them, there's a war going on for their soul. That's right. And if you respond correctly by blessing them instead of responding in anger, what happens? You can heap coals on them, and you can also sometimes draw them right to the Lord. You can draw them. You can change their hearts. At some point, there's maybe they'll come to repentance about how they're feeling and they're within them. Okay, so there's praying. He talks about giving, about how you treat others. There's a whole bunch of them here. We almost, about um, lending without expecting anything in return. 
right? If you do these things, you will be this. If you do these things, you will be sons. In other words, you will resemble him. Now, what I want to do is do this. I want to clarify one thing. This is super duper important. So pay really close attention is to answer this question for me. Is this passage speaking about how you get saved? Or is this speaking about what you do as a saved child of God, how you live? It's about how you live. This is sanctification, not justification. So you've got to understand, this is not saying that if you don't do these things, you're not saved. It's saying this is what you as a Christian, as a child of God, are to aspire to. If you want to be like your dad, whom, by the way, or if you want Jesus to be your Lord, if you say to him, Lord, Lord, and he says, why do you call me Lord and then not do what I say? Right? It's a challenge to us. So do not think that the things that are being written in here are saying to you, this is how you are going to be saved. And if you don't do, do these things, you're not saved. That is not what it's saying. This is speaking. As a matter of fact, Rebecca brought it up. He turned his gaze to his despair disciples and began to speak the message is primarily to the believer who is already committed to following the Lord and now he is instructing them on how they are to behave and how they are to live this is sanctification work of the Lord in your life is did everybody catch that when you went through this because sometimes there gets to be this tug of war going on with us when we start reading things like this do this or no do even the blessings and the curses it almost sounds like well gosh if I don't and if I fail in that in any way then maybe I'm not saved or I'm not going to get saved well you don't get saved by doing anything do you how do you get saved believing on the Lord Jesus Christ right it's so it's by faith you are saved not of works, least any man should boast. It, okay, there you go. So the reality is what he's showing us here is this is if, in fact, you have the, the Spirit of God living in you, if, you are, if he is your Lord, these will be the fruit of your tree. So he takes us there in this next section. So let me just, I've got, I'm going to go past just a smidgen here, but I'm going to cover this. He goes on to say, be merciful as your father is merciful. And then, did you notice the parable? He, he talks about a blind man can't lead a blind man. What was he talking about there? What, did that, what, was, he, what was his point to bringing that blind man thing up? What does he want you and I to do? Have our eyes wide open. Don't be a blind man. If you're going to lead others to, into this faith that you are in, and if you want others to have Jesus as their Lord also, you have to first do, do some eva personal evaluating. He's going to get into that next. But he's saying you can't be blind. You have to understand this is what your father is like. This is who your Lord is. And if I am truly your Lord, you will do these things. And, he, and so he's challenging us to, to, to come. He wants you. He's teaching you the principles of the character of a Christian. These are what you're to be like. And he says in the end, in verse 40, everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like what? Like his teacher. Again, you're going to be like your father. You're going to be merciful as your father is merciful. You're going to be a son of the Most High. You are going to be like your teacher. Okay, then 41 to 45, 
Jesus then exhorted them to examine themselves. And we're not going to go into that. We talked about it just briefly earlier. But basically, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't even notice the log in your own eye? So he's challenging them not to be hypocritical in their faith walk. How many people are chased away from Christianity because of hypocrites who say one thing but do another, right? And Jesus teaches this in Matthew about the the Pharisees who wash the outside but inside are dead man's bones, right, of the tombstones or the teacup. They wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy. And so he, this is what he's saying. Don't be hypocritical in your faith walk. If you love me, these qualities need to be present in your life, and you need to strive for them, seek for them, work towards them. This is not how you get saved. This is what you do because you are saved. So you need to aspire to it. It's a determination that you make on a daily basis. Okay, then the last one is, so he says, to examine yourself. 